Hello and welcome to the Rest and Rule of Law podcast. My name is Alexander Lazovic. Um, I'm assistant editor at the Review of Democracy, and my guest today is Martin Krieger, here to talk about the institutionalization and deinstitutionalization of the rule of law. Um, he is currently the Gordon Samuels Professor of Law and Social Theory at the University in South Wales, uh, co-director of the Network for Interdisciplinary Studies of Law, honorary professor in the Regulatory Institutions Network, recurring visiting professor at the Graduate School of Social Research at, uh, at the Polish Academy of Science, and he's currently working on the project Constitutional Populism, Friend of Foe of Constitutional Democracy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, yes. Uh, so to start off, maybe to talk a bit about what the rule of law is, uh, you have been one of the very early proponents of the idea that the rule of law is not merely a laundry list to be ticked off, but should rather be seen teleologically. Could you briefly explain what this means and how it affects how we think or how we should think about the rule of law? Sure. I mean, after all, it's not just a laundry list. The, the, it's a laundry list of particular legal rules, forms of rule, institutions, arrangements. That is the mainstream way of starting to think about the rule of law. The rule of law, a conventional wisdom has it, consists of, and then you fill it out, independent judiciary, separation of powers. If you're a lawyer or a constitutional developer, if you're a legal philosopher, you talk about the forms of rules, clear perspective, unambiguous, and so on. And it seems to me that that is, while these are potentially important characteristics of legal institutions for certain purposes, that's exactly the wrong place to start. And if I can draw on the wisdom that I found on Google the other day, the CEO of Black & Decker, which is a, an American, large American power tool company, is said to have said, and if he didn't, he should have because it's so wise, People don't come into a hardware store because they need our drills. They come in because they need a hole in the wall. And so what he's saying there is you don't come, people who are concerned about the rule of law, who suffer from the lack of it, who dream of a society where it matters, are less interested and not at all primarily interested in the bits and pieces that lawyers concoct to do something, they're interested in the something. There's a problem that is at the heart of rule of law concerns. And that problem has been identified for a very long time as being arbitrary power. So my way of looking at it is don't start with the lists because the lists are bound to be local to some extent, they won't apply everywhere. Time uh, constrained, they won't apply in the, same time, in the same ways in different times. Aristotle is constantly cited as one of the early proponents of the rule of law. He was not thinking about our institutions. And problems change. So if you're worried about the rule of law and Google, you're worried about a problem which has in common with traditional rule of law problems, that it includes the possibility of arbitrary power but your solutions are gonna to have to be different. And so my argument is, first of all, ask what's the problem? My solution, not at all, uh, not my solution. My suggestion, not at all uh, original, is arbitrary power is a huge 
problem. The exercise of power is a domain of concern for everybody, and arbitrary power is a huge problem. Then what do you want? Well, you would like it somehow to be softened, moderated, tempered. That's an, a, a, an aim for the rule of law. Only then, it seems to me, is it appropriate to then ask, well, how do we do that? And in certain places, you do it some ways. And in other places, those ways don't have any tradition. They don't have any grounding. They don't have, to use a term that I know we'll come back to, they are not institutionalized locally. So you're going to have to think harder about how to get there. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, we, we will turn to institutions in a moment. But before we do so, um, despite rejecting these laundry lists, you have in the past given uh, at least some examples of norms that you, that you said were deemed necessary for the rule of law to persist. And two that you mentioned in particular were the prevention of torture and also the prohibition on using racist selection criteria. Uh, for university admission. Are these inherently connected to the rule of law or are these connected to other fundamental values such as, for example, human dignity and fundamental rights? That's a good question. Uh, it's common in the conventional understandings of the rule of law to distinguish between thin and thick accounts. Thin accounts just focus on particular formal institutions. Thick accounts say, no, no, to get the rule of law, you also have to have some morally uh, attractive content to the law, human rights, justice, etc. I don't like that distinction. And my own view straddles these two elements. So I'm not interested. I think it's important to distinguish one's understanding of the rule of law from lots of other good things we would want, justice, human rights, equality, fairness, and so on. Because if the rule of law means all those things, it's got no conceptual distinct role to play. You don't need another phrase, we have those. If we go back to arbitrary power, it's one of those things like obscenity that people say, I know it when I see it, but I can't define it. So when we think of the arbitrary power, we might think capricious willful. And I've tried, I'm not a conceptual analyst, but I've tried to uh, distinguish four sorts of exercise of power, which are arbitrary. That is, my concern is not, are they just my direct power? It's, are they arbitrary? One is, very strong in legal traditions, certainly the common law tradition, but many others, uncontrolled power. Power is uncontrolled, that's the original understanding, it's arbitrary. A second one is the concern of the legal philosophers, including Fuller, Long Fuller, and Joseph Raz, and many others, predictability or reckonability. Can we know when we're acting how the law is going to affect us? A third, which Jeremy Waldron introduced, he calls procedural, but it's a much larger notion than I think that he uh, elaborates. It is that we should be treated with respect. There's humans, not as, as he puts it, dilapidated houses or rabid dogs, just objects of our concern. And a fourth one, which I haven't written about, I think it's actually perhaps the most important, and I'm just getting to what I hope is an understanding of it, is power which is 
ungrounded in a justifiable relationship to a permitted or a, a justifiable goal. And so if, if uh, I talk about torture, it's a paradigm case, case of arbitrariness in the third sense, no respect for persons. If one talks about uh, selection on racial criteria for jobs which have no racial, maybe you could argue that if you want a fellow, the actor should be black and male. Even that now is becoming more complicated. But if you're talking about uh, selection for a university entrance or a whole range of things, then the criterion, the exercise of power is unrelated to any justifiable goal. So that's on my elaboration of arbitrariness, the fact that this is has a substantive element is not for me the issue. The, the issue is, is it arbitrary? Does it treat people in ways that they can't prepare for, that just ignores them as persons who are the victims of the exercise of power? That's very interesting, especially the, the force aspect uh, relates to, to many legal issues concerning anti-discrimination law in, in a more general sense. And, um, and it's, you know, I've puzzled over it. I might have written about the first three uh, for some years and always felt there was something missing. And I'm trying to understand this one. And it relates too to the doctrine of proportionality. In a sense, you could, if you want to know what's going wrong here, it is that the exercise of power is not proportionate in any justifiable way to a decent or a justifiable end. But this, this is not a substantive demand in terms of some requirement that justice be served or whatever. Those are good, good requirements. I'm all for them, but they're separate requirements. Okay. And uh, to, to, to turn back to the question of institutionalization, um, let's talk about what that actually entails, institutionalizing the rule of law, because you argue that uh, the rule of law needs to be institutionalized and, and you distinguish between processes of institutionalization that happen naturally and projects that require leadership and mindfulness of uh, existing values and institutions. Could you maybe briefly introduce our listeners to how you stand, understand these terms and their distinctions? And in connection with that, actually, the European Union, which is often called a project, um, is currently in a rule of law crisis. And do you see any connection between, or any potential connection between seeing the European project as a project and the failure to institutionalize the rule of law in some member states? Can we speak of a lack of leadership, for example, in this regard by the European institutions? Uh, in another branch of work, I have been very influenced by a great American sociologist, Philip Selznick, and I wrote a book about him, he does, not, he's not talking about these subjects, but he was many things, but his career began where he was one of the foremost analysts of administrative and organizational behavior. He wrote uh, several books, one called Leadership in Administration. His most famous early book, his first book, Tennessee Valley Authority and the Grassroots, and then one of interest in uh, East Europe, I have no doubt, is an extraordinary book on 
communist organizational tactics called the organizational weapon. And he began thinking on these um, subjects by arguing that it's common, or it was then common, to think of organizations, bureaucracies, and so on, as technical instruments. Particularly after Weber, there was this notion that modern bureaucracy was formal, rule-bound, uh, <clears throat> that the law of particularly Western European states was formally rational, et cetera, et cetera, and that this was developed, these formal mechanistic elements of law and organization were, were distinctively more fully developed in, in uh, the modern world than ever before. And Selznick said, well, yes, it is distinctive, these formal characteristics, but if you analyze the way that organizations behave, you'll discover that informal networks, connections, loyalties, myths, stories, narratives about the organization play a hugely important role. Think, what is it to be a Marine or a member of a church? Is it just that you belong to an organization which does this rather than that, like a post office? Or is there something more going on? And he said, there is something more going on. And he used a term which is well known, but not in his sense, institutionalization. An organization becomes institutionalized to the extent that it is infused with value. This is his definition, beyond the technical purposes at hand. So it becomes something valued, something to which people have connection. The US Constitution, uh, he says, well, it's a document. But US constitutional law is not just about a document. It's a whole culture of interpretation. It's a whole range of conventions, of norms, of traditions, of ways of reading, of ways of interpreting, and so on. But that's more generally true. And what I've done, where I've tried to think, about uh, why, to the surprise of many, leaders like Kaczynski in Poland, Orban in Hungary, have turned what seemed to be liberal democratic success stories into parodies. I've, the question I asked it, why did, or what I asked it when I wrote the first article on this, when Trump was still in power, why did Trump have such difficulty doing what Orban and Kaczynski found so easy to do. That is, ignore institutions painfully and conscientiously brought, destroy many, take over others, and so on. And my suggestion, not as a wholesale explanation, but just as an element in the story, is that in the euphoric, enthusiastic heyday of post-communism end of history. Not that anybody believed in end of history, but nobody had too many alternatives. Nobody was thinking deeply, and maybe it's not available to us. Maybe we simply don't understand on a large scale to think deeply about how to make new foreign, maybe alien institutions stick 
against competition. We know what they should be. So there was a lot of talk in the first few years and also in rule of law promotion projects all around the world of international best practice. Okay, so a refrigerator has these components. They're the best in the world. We should have them here. Okay, it might work for refrigerators, though that too depends on a particular, an effective electricity supply or whatever. But legal institutions and democratic practices are more complicated. They work best when they are institutionalized. And what does that mean? Well, in any society, and in East European societies, I think you can make the case. There are lots of already institutionalized values which aren't particularly hospitable to what the reformers were seeking to import in 1919 through the 90s. They had their own ways, their own rationales. They were not raised in a democratic fashion or a legally uh, constrained fashion. That was not part of the landscape. And we, everybody knew that. And uh, there was, though, a lot of what the Polish sociologist Grzyna Skomska called instrumental thinking rather than reflective thinking about how to uh, develop constitutionalism, the rule of law and other allied practices in post-communist circumstances. There, everything seemed obvious. I'm old enough to have been around at the time. Everything seemed obvious. This, the big system, there's this bipolar contra, uh, war, Cold War, but war, uh, for the second half of the century, and bang, like this, it all, one side collapses. It's not even punched. It's not, no war, nothing, it just falls apart. And in that, in those circumstances, I think that it was natural, but perhaps not wise, to think, well, there's only one game left in town. There's a winner, and the winning team has these components, democracy, market economy, rule of law. Let's get behind that. And at elite levels, that was the program. And it was not, not much, it was not, now we see, it was not deeply institutionalized with a lot of people in the countries where it was important. Now you mentioned, no, sorry, you mentioned process and project. These are my terms, not Selznick's term, but uh, because I'm adapting him, he's not talking about these issues, though it's his language. Institutionalization in any society happens often as a process. Things develop, we grow attachments, uh, loyalties, understanding that this is the way we do things here. And in many post-communist countries, law was not the way we did things here. Law was alien, imposed, be suspected, and so on. But there, the process is something which developed organically, of course, can be shocked. There's a war and some old understandings are torn apart. But there's another way, another element to institutionalization, which is which was really Selznick's problem. If you're the leader of an organization, you want to change something. What do you need to do? And he says, well, you need first of all to be aware that this is not just a mechanical matter. If you're in an organization, you're leading an organization, you've got to understand it's not a blank, blank canvas. There are going to be all of these uh, 
existing loyalties, ways of behaving, not all of them congenial to you. Secondly, if you want to change them, it's not impossible. But you have to think, how do you make this graft with this, with these existing institutionalized behaviors and organizations, which on the one hand, which on the one hand provide you with resources. If you can draw on them, they go in your direction, but they also provide you with resistances. If they're hostile, they don't accommodate, they're not interested in what you think is obvious, then you've got to think about how to bring them around. Now, the three books I mentioned, that's what he focuses on. How did communists, in the organizational weapon, how did communists develop an organization in hostile surroundings to which people will devote their lives? Or you could ask us about jihadists now. These are organizational techniques. You have to uh, tell people, you don't just tell them. You have to inculcate, you have to make this a way of uh, being and living. And my belief is that uh, reformers with whom I identified and who I support uh, didn't give this much of a thought. Now, the European project is a project. And I'm not an expert on it. That's not something I work on, but I've observed it and I edited it with um, Adam Chanot and, and Wojciech Sadurski on the European project at the time of accession. Uh, I can't remember what spreading democracy and the rule of law, question mark. And uh, at the time I was struck by the extent, and this was not my observation, but just one that I read about, to which accession was so much an elite to elite process. Now this has become a cliche. I don't condemn them for that simply, but I think what it betrays is a lack of a sense that institutionalization is gonna be what makes things count. So if you say to a country which is desperate to get in, first you have to satisfy 80,000 pages of the Aki. Well, you're not talking to the, the the average peasant or the average judge or the average bureaucrat or the average politician. So that's, I take to be a failure of institutionalization. A lot more would have to be said, but that's what I'm talking about. Great, thank you. Well, maybe not great, but uh, thank you in any <laughs> case. Um, but uh, yeah, let's turn to the to the other side of the coin, the deinstitutionalization, um, because you said uh, leading up to this interview that you have more to say about that maybe. Um, and uh, you mentioned in, in, in one of your papers on, on Hungary and Poland that one of the new ways in which populists proceed in this regard is that they adhere to the forms of the rule of law uh, while hollowing it out uh, in substance. Uh, my question here is, can we speak or can we still speak of such an adherence in the Polish case, considering that the government there in the past has shown very little regard for constitutional norms and uh, even the, its own constitutional court in, in, in this regard? Sure. Could I just, just because I saw it, I've got a quotation which nobody will have heard. I did an interview with a remarkable Slovenian uh, journalist, Milharcik. This was, I don't know, five or six years ago. And he was saying how the EU came to Slovenia. He said, 
we changed the constitutional order by downloading it from the servers in Brussels, done in stages defined by the EU itself. Should have been hard work, but it just meant you needed to hire an IT webmaster. There was no real political discussion. Uh, and then he says, political dif differences formed on the fringes of political debate about the past, guilt, and so on. They were vicious, for example, gypsies. This went on for 15 years. This went on for all post-communist countries who wanted to join the EU. Discussion moved to these marginal issues. Now, I think that's the one, that's both brilliant, the computer analogy, and short-sighted because these are not marginal issues. In terms of institutionalization, the people, reformers, were all at the server stage and gypsies, the past, guilt, this, this, these were marginal issues. They weren't part of their game. But for many people, it turns out, they were not marginal issues. And so what struck me when I wrote the first of these pieces, I'd written three or four pieces trying to work through this notion of institutionalization. What struck me was that whereas reformers, certainly from without, so American, German, etc., but also among elites from within, uh, did lack the sense that institutionalization was key. key. Donald Tusk, uh, before he finished in, in his government, uh, just before he came to government, said he didn't want to talk about the vision thing. It was all about warm water and taps. Well, that's not how Kaczynski thinks about politics, unless people want water and taps and he'll try to persuade them that he's the only person who can give it. Uh, from the start, it seems to me that the one thing that the uh, populists really understand is the importance of institutionalization. They're not interested in any of the substantive values of the reforms, except to uh, break them or hollow them out. But they are institute, they are, their assault is an assault of de, first, in the first sense of de-institutionalizing the reform. So showing these to be uh, brought about by aliens who uh, believe different things from us, who travel too far, who are far too well educated and, and, and uh, believe things different from us. This is exactly a sort of counter Selznick playbook. This is saying, okay, we want to detach or make it impossible for these new institutions to be grafted, to be grounded. And we do it by attacking their lack of connection with our institutionalized core, however it's defined. So then one of the things that a lot of people have remarked upon is that these days we don't have many, though we have a few, military coups. We don't have bloody revolutions, again, we have some, but certainly not in Western Europe, in Central Europe. Uh, we have constitutional arguments. And if we, in Poland, and including one of my co-editors, uh, Wojciech Sadurski, as soon as he opens his mouth, he gets sued. 
It's a legal strategy. Uh, the Constitution is treated like a criminal code. Lawyers, are I had this, uh, if I could since CEU is relevant here. I was once at a conference in uh, the CEU in Budapest in, in May, I think 2017. Anyway, over the year, I think it was that year, it was just after Lex CEU, the bill had been presented. And uh, the president of, uh, then president of the CEU, Michael Ignatiev, came to a conference that I was at. And he said, you know, that's so puzzling to me. I'm not a lawyer, but it's obvious that the attack is political. And so when our people go to no negotiate with government people, we think that they're going to argue about policy, et cetera. And they say, no, I think you French section 21CB of the whatever act it is. So there is a kind of using of law and not just constitutional law. Uh, administrative law. Law is put to use, but in ways which de-institutionalize the values of these imports. And they do that first, they do enormous amount of, first of all, hollowing out. And that doesn't, it's not just the mechanical thing. So you appoint some judges, as in Poland, who had no right to be appointed to the constitution. You set up your own commission of the appoints judges and so on. You have the disciplinary committee. It's not only that, you launch first a huge attack on billboards, on the media, which you also own by this time, or at least the public media, on judges that's corrupt, on you deinstitutionalize. You hollow out, but you use. So it's not that you destroy, as in the first stages, the communists, destroyed law in Burma, which I know a bit because I used to work a bit there. Uh, the Burma regime, presumably again now, though now they pretend to be more legal than they used to. They just closed all the law schools in the uh, earlier regime before the transformation, the first transformation. So now, no, now you use law, but you take it over instrumentally, so you get the people. You detach it from the values which uh, were supposed to animate it. But then, once it is completely emasculated, you start to build it up again so, as your instrument. So first of all, you break it, then you take it, and then you use it. And so I think that when you think of the shrill rhetoric of uh, Orban in Hungary, of Kaczynski, of Chavez in Venezuela, of Bolsonaro, of Duterte in Philippines, and so on. Do you think they all believe what they're saying? No. They don't say it's just a matter of warm water and taps. That may be all they care about. No, it's not all they care about. But they, they're, or Trump, who is an extraordinary example of such a leader. That usually populist rhetoric is uh, sustained and very widespread attempt at deinstitutionalizing certain things and then reinstitutionalizing the church, the role, for example, in the Hungarian constitution of, of the church, 
the crown, a whole range of things. They knew what this game was about in a way that we, I fear, did not fully understand. Partly because uh, modern technocrats have a lot more faith than perhaps is wise in sort of can-do best practice approach. They do, I suspect, because they don't understand institutionalization, but more deeply and more worryingly. No one understands. Maybe populists do, but it's very hard to do. I mean, you could say the deinstitutionalization story about uh, Afghanistan. Of course, it's only part of this. But I focused a little on law. And a close friend of mine with whom I uh, did a book on, on Afghanistan, uh, who spent some good time there, did a survey while he was in Kandahar of attitudes to the courts. And there are three systems. There are the traditional systems, there is the, uh, the Taliban system, and there was the government system. The traditional system was the one that people believed in most because it, they knew it was not particularly efficient, but it, 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 it was highly institutionalized. Second came the Taliban, because for reasons uh, of revolutionary strategy, they tried to make their, they tried to solve problems among people that they weren't killing. It's another way of solving uh, But the third only, were the courts that we were backing, the courthouses that the Americans were building, et cetera. They were efficient, they were corrupt, and they were uh, not fit for purpose. Thank you. Um, turning back a bit uh, from, from Afghanistan, which uh, obviously is, is, is a whole other tragedy, um, to the populists um, in, in Europe and North America, especially, but uh, also in South America, Uh, there, there seems to be another prevalent tool being used by these populists, and that's um, a rhetoric of uh, democracy, where they seem to build up democracy as a rival to the rule of law. So I would like to uh, ask you to maybe talk a bit about the relationship between democracy and the rule of law. Uh, are they rivals or do they need each other, um, especially with regard to the prevention or tempering of arbitrary power? Some would argue this is also the point of a democratic system. And what would you tell people that would argue that the rule of law that goes beyond the rule by law is unnecessary to prevent arbitrary power in the democracy? I, I've written exactly on that question in the uh, Cambridge uh, Companion to the Rule of Law just came out last week. And I have a piece there on democracy and the rule of law. So really I'll just be paraphrasing, I guess, uh, some of what I said there. I think the first point is they aren't the same. Very often in sort of UN and other uh, declarations, we say what you need is democracy, human rights, etc., as though they all fit seamlessly together. First of all, they ask different questions. Democracy asks who rules, or at least who controls the rules, whatever. Of course, democracy is a complicated notion in modern societies. There is some notion that the people are the sovereign. Who rules? Uh, Isaiah Berlin, 
used to distinguish that question from a question of how much uh, does government interfere with you? Question of what he called negative liberty. I think there's a third question, and this is for me the rule of law question. How are we ruled? So there's who rules, how are we ruled? And my argument, well, the rule of law tradition says we should be ruled in constrained, moderated, uh, tempered fashion. So they are different. And there are, at the dawn of thinking about these things in the beginning of the 19th century, Benjamin Constant distinguished between the liberty of the ancients, the people rule in Athens, and the liberty of the modern, we have rights. And he argued that these, in their pure forms, were inconsistent because rights requ require a constraining on the popular majority, whereas democracy requires the popular majority does. And this is a, it goes in both directions normatively, but in the 19th century when Tocqueville worried about the tyranny of the majority and Mill did the same, they were worried about democratic excesses. In a sense, they didn't use the rule of law, but you could say there is this tension. And the populists go in the other direction. They say, well, the tension is, why should we be ruled by nine judges? Uh, if they were in America, they'd say white male, not yet dead, but close to, uh, judges, that there is an inconsistency on this populist claim between not just judges, intermediating powers, uh, that is ways of constraining, channeling the exercise of power. So it's able to do the things it should do, but not able to do peremptorily things that it shouldn't do. But I think uh, this, while these are different things, they're not part of the same single package. My view is that at least in modern conditions, and I think we see it starkly with the development of populist regimes now, is that a real democracy requires both popular control in one sense or another, and intermediation and protection against a whole range of possible powers. But that includes the power of the majority. Why? Uh, well, you actually, Afghanistan's women in Afghanistan will not find it easy to participate in public life, not only because there aren't avenues for voting for them, whatever, but because they get killed for it. So their private rights are going to are being invaded. That has both public and private uh, consequences. This is why Habermas uh, eloquently argues that you need both public rights, right of participation, et cetera, et cetera, undergirded by private rights. Each needs the other. To secure the public, people who have to be able to assemble, they have to be able to argue, to influence, et cetera. Uh, but to secure the private rights, that is the rights to be protected in the way the rule of law does protect you, they have to have some influence over government. Uh, Nadia Urbinati, who has written wonderfully on democracy, points out in several books 
that a democracy is not just a matter of um, expression of one's will. It also requires the ability to form opinions. Opinion formation is um, the fact that you go to a ballot ignorant or simply in, in uh, knowledge of the, uh, of the propaganda of one side, that has to be uh, uh, an, abuse, an abuse of the democratic process. So my argument, it's not my argument, it's simply, it's, it's, but it's an argument, I believe, is that democracy and the rule of law are deeply, deeply complementary. There is a more sophisticated argument in, uh, not by populists, though sometimes they use that term, particularly in American jurisprudence, but it's been used elsewhere, uh, which distinguishes, as I'm sure you'll know, between uh, political and legal constitutionalism. And again, this is the argument that we give too much power to these aloof, independent, elite bodies. And we should open up the possibilities of popular uh, control within democracies. So it's constitutionalist in aim, but some of the institutions we use would not be judicial ones, but popular audits and popular participation, maybe citizen juries and so on and so forth. In principle, I have, they may work, they may not. In principle, I think that's absolutely kosher. But that language has sometimes been taken over by the sophisticated jurists around Orban to pretend that what he is doing or what Kaczynski is doing is political constitutionalism, but it's not, because it has no constitutionalist ambition. It has no ambition, in fact, it has the opposite, to constrain, channel the so-called popular will, which means the, the will of the populist leader. Uh, it has none of that. Uh, and so I, to conclude that, I think that these are complementary, mutually necessary for a uh, healthy democracy and for a well-functioning rule of law. Uh, thank you. Yeah, um, you, you, you've mentioned a couple of times Afghanistan, and obviously also when we talk about the uh, accession um, of, of uh, Poland and Hungary to the European Union, they all happened at in the early 2000s in this the, the height, so to speak, of the laundry list approaches. Um, so before we turn to to uh, the rule of law crisis worldwide, where do you think this this dominance of the laundry list approaches comes from in this early of the what the sorry the dom where do you think the dominance of the laundry list approaches come came from in the in the 90s and 2000s you already mentioned the end of the cold war was it just that or is there uh, something else that is really appealing about these laundry list approaches for policymakers this may sound flippant but i think there's something in it uh you know the expression to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So to a lawyer, a legal problem is a problem to be solved directly by legal means. Now, it seems to me something I haven't talked about at all, but it does follow from my um, teleological, my approach of saying start with the problem. If you start with the problem, you don't know unless it's a very simple problem. You don't know what you will need for the solutions. 
But if you start with the, the list, that's what you, you have. And you say, well, what can I do with this law, with this form, etc.? And so I am struck again and again by the kind of intellectual insularity of lawyers who talk rule of law. You're talking about something which you hope will have, certainly people in countries without it hope, will have some effect on the exercise of power in the society. That means it'll constrain politicians. It also should mean, I believe, that it will constrain big power, which is not necessarily uh, political power, but corporate power, etc. These aren't easy things to do. So why, how could you imagine that uh, the form of the law, or what happens to somebody when they're before a court? Nobody goes before courts. Most people don't get so uh, I think that this insularity is problematic, but hugely common, and perhaps especially among lawyers, that's what they do. But what they do is terribly important, particularly when people want to shut them off. Uh, I think also, I shouldn't be so critical. If you're a lawyer, dealing with law is what you know. Dealing with some of these huge and large issues, America was not a not a peanut country. Spent twenty years in Afghanistan, and what they got out of it is failure, failure, disaster, uh, accumulated wreckage of people's lives and hopes and so on. They tried for something else. These things are hard, and also something we've forgotten. Not forgotten. A lot of things take a lot of time, and we don't have time. So 20 years in transforming a country is not a long time, but it's a long time to have a war. Uh, so I wouldn't be too blame assigning because I don't have answers. I'm just, I'm just a question mark. Uh, but I think that if you identify something as a legal problem, lawyers will think it needs to have a legal solution. And many of these big problems, law is important maybe, and the absence, the absence of well-constructed law, right? the destruction of a constitutional court, particularly when it's part of a, a, a much larger project, <coughs> destroying independent media and so on, so the civil That is a hugely big warning sign and a danger. But having a good constitutional court is maybe only a tiny part of the solution, maybe no part of the solution. So um, before we come to the end, um, uh, to talk a bit more about the relationship between the laundry list and the rule of law crisis worldwide, um, the, the rule of law crisis is not just something in the obvious candidate countries, you know, in, in, in Asia and Central Eastern Europe, but we also have attacks, rhetorical attacks on courts in Western Europe. We have uh, attack on the Supreme Court in the United States, not just from the right, but also from the left. Um, there's rule of law regression in South America. Is there a connection between these tendencies worldwide? Has the rule of law lost its appeal? And has maybe, if, if, if this is so, if it has lost its popular appeal, has that to do with the laundry list approaches and, and the failure of using these approaches to implement the rule of law in new countries? Is there a larger connection at work here? I think there are large connections, but I'm not sure there are those connections. That is, I think uh, if, you, if we weren't lawyers, we might be concerned with the decline in faith in democracy. 
We might be concerned in with um, the inability of states to manage in important things like pandemics or uh, financial crises, etc. We might be concerned about growing inequality in various places. Now, these these sort of volcanoes bubbling away have effects in many spheres of life. I, for all my rather moderate criticism of laundry lists as places to start, I don't think that they've got that. I don't think they have that power. I think they're a symptom of. Uh, you know, it was easier to live in traditional societies where God God handled the big things. And we just expected everything on the world, on the earth, to keep going on as it did. We didn't think we could change much. And we were proved right, nothing much changed. Now, in modernity, we have this huge um, imaginative ambition that there is so much that we could do if we got it right. And I'm struck by, I just, sorry, this is a strange aside. Uh, a book of Kafka's lost essays, as they're called, sometimes little tiny fragments, a couple of pages, has come out recently in English translation. And I've been reading it. And there's one three-page story, which begins with children watching their father, big man, with a sharp knife, trying to cut a slice of bread, to slice a, a loaf of bread. And he fails. The whole story is about how he can't do it. And he looks at his children. He said, why are you so surprised? I don't have the words right now. He said, you should be more surprised if I were to succeed than if I failed, because most things fail. So uh, that's a pessimistic, well, Kafka was not full of laughs, but uh, well, he was full of laughs, but they were pessimistic laughs. Uh, so I don't think that the fact that people who talk about the rule of law or promote the rule of law uh, don't succeed, and they don't actually, uh, is the cause for this widespread dissatisfaction with existing liberal democratic polities and orders. I think that is a huge, huge uh, problem that the world is facing. It was easier. The rule of law was such a success story in the 90s, or it seemed to be, because it was part of this package which seemed to success. Now, if we have doubts about the rule of law, partly it's because we have doubts about the package. We have doubts internally because uh, even in countries like Poland, where um, the economy was very effective, inequality was very high. We have doubts because in America, similar stories could be, could be told. Many of these are doubts which have no legal origin, but they will affect the, our attitude to the sort of great exemplars of our modern civilization. And not to mention the argument of uh, Stephen Holmes and, and um, uh, Ivan, Ivan Kastev, uh, that within, we had a huge imitative enthusiasm at the beginning of the 90s. It wasn't just outsiders imposing it, it was insiders. We want to be like. Normal countries. That became that was harder to do, and in the meantime, the normal countries looked less and less attractive. They had problems that they didn't expect, and they didn't know how to solve. 
So I don't think that the lack of faith in law is all law's fault. I think lawyers think, for good or bad, law has more to do with it than, than it often does. That's some, some positive and good news for, for our lawyer listeners. Um, so um, just before we're finishing, uh, you mentioned also that you, that you just finished editing a new book uh, called Anti-Constitutional Populism. Um, could you maybe give us a quick preview of what we can expect? Sure. There? Well, actually, I'm a co-editor with, again, uh, the Musketeers. So there's Adam Chanotta, Richard uh, Sadurski, and I have it. And anti-constitutional populism is a somewhat unusual term. The more common term is constitutional populism. And we know why, because as we've talked about earlier this evening, uh, one of the striking features of um, modern populists is the amount of attention they give to using and abusing uh, law. And the populists we have in mind, who are most of the populists, there's an argument whether populism is necessarily anti-constitutional, but whether or not it is, most of the successful, where we, this book is only about regimes, it's not about populists in power. Uh, it's about populists in power. And most of the contemporary populists in power are anti-constitutional in the ways we talk about. That is, they take over institutions, deinstitutionalize them, follow them out, instrumentalize them, abuse them, but they do it in ostensibly legally justifiable terms. And so the book, it's an edited book with 15 contributions, tries to analyze this characteristic, first of all, by acknowledging uh, that there is an argument that not every false form of populism is anti-constitutional. So you had, I know on one of your podcasts, Brian Bugrich, he's a contributor to this book and his argument, as you also know, is that populism is given a bad name. There are good populisms, bad populisms. I'm less confident about that. We're focusing on bad populism, but we try to survey a range of options, both of kinds of populism, but also of countries and of regions. So we have uh, pieces on South Africa, on several Latin American countries, particularly Venezuela and Brazil, on the Philippines, and because it's our closest to our knowledge and heart, on post-communist Europe, particularly Hungary and, and Poland. We focus, because it's this, the focus of so much of this attention, also in a separate section on uh, anti-constitutional populists and courts. Again, here we uh, have articles on Brazil and on, on Venezuela and on Poland and on, on Hungary. We have a third section which looks at post-post-communist populism. So populism, particularly in, in East Central Europe, and more specifically still in Hungary and Poland. And then we have another section on EU responses to this. So that's sort of substantively what it's about. But it's the general theme is to try to capture the character, the varieties, the significance, and to some extent, responses to populism of this sort that is, and to this aspect of populism, that's its anti 
constitutional aspect. Great, thank you. Um, very much looking forward to, to when this book comes out. It comes out, we hope, in February, uh, but uh, it comes out with Cambridge University Press. Okay, we will, we will keep our eyes peeled for that. And um, thank you very much for the interview. Pleasure, well, thank you. Thank you. It's good to talk.